0: Welcome to a new episode of NBRI, New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Thank Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Bern Skira, Chair and Professor of Electronic Commerce at the Goethe University, Frankfurt, Germany. He's a member of the Managing Board of the EFL, the Data Institute out there, as well as the Schmallenbach Society, and German's representative, uh, Germany's representative at the European marketing community, or EMAC. Um, Burns' research interests include MarTech, sales Tech, e-commerce, online marketing, marketing analytics, consumer privacy, and value-based customer management. Uh, Bernd is ranked among the top 30 scientists worldwide based on publication in the American Marketing Association AMA journals, such as Journal of Marketing and Journal of Marketing Research. Uh, Bernd did his dissertation in Habitation at the University of Kiel. Prior to becoming an academic, Bernd also served as a software developer at SAP. Good um, talk, Bernd. Uh, thank you for joining me in this conversation today. We get
1: Mir geht es sehr gut, Benki. Machen wir
0: das Interview auf Deutsch? Sehr gut. Uh, 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 is, uh, uh, so please uh, thank, uh, put up with my uh, limited German, but thank you for joining me today. How have you been in the last uh, one year or so ever since the outbreak of COVID?
1: I mean, uh, none of us is uh, actually very happy about COVID, but but what I enjoyed is that we had to move towards digitization in, in the teaching area. So uh, finally, I managed to uh, Uh, Come up with all the videos from my classes and I'm actually quite surprised how well it is perceived how much I enjoy it. So I'm pretty sure I I mean hopefully the COVID will be over uh, quite soon. But I'm pretty sure that the world we will encounter after the COVID will be substantially different from the world before COVID. And so in that sense, uh, despite all the disadvantages of the virus, I think it also has good adv- a lot of advantages for uh, the research and the teaching in particular. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm glad you see a positive in the post-COVID era. Uh, I introduce you uh, in the tra- traditional way, but I'd like you to describe yourself in maybe five words or less. Uh, what really makes a burnt uh, scura tick?
1: Well, I I think I'm an early bird. So what I really enjoy, I don't have to set up the alarm clock, but but I'm one of those persons if they didn't get much done until lunchtime, they're really nervous. Uh, So I usually get up early in the morning. I enjoy having a cup of coffee and then starting to work. And I also think I'm fairly passionate about what I do. I, I love my job being a professor in business. Uh, I really love uh, working together with doctoral students. It gives me uh, exposure to really bright uh, uh, people who challenge me and hopefully I can also help them developing uh, a good uh, academic career. Uh, As a researcher, as both of us knows, uh, not always the research is perceived by everyone as being as excited as we think. So we have to be persistent. We have to work on improving the research. And and if you look at my research that I do, it's usually empirical work. So I really try to put together interesting data sets, look at new problems, and then hopefully come up with a very good uh, solution.
0: That describes you very well from what I know you also. And, Tell us a little bit about your research journey. I know you moved from software development into academia, and then you started your journey, University of Kiel. Tell us, walk us through uh, some of the key aspects of your research journey so far.
1: Well, I certainly enjoyed working for SAP from 85 to 88. That was just a time before they went uh, public. I was among the first 200 uh, employees. But that was certainly a really exciting time Uh, I was kind of a startup feeling when I was very young. And then uh, I decided to go for a PhD or doctoral degree. And I was certainly very uh, influenced by my doctoral supervisor I think Albers, who had the idea that he wanted to outline the monetary impact of a marketing decision. And that's certainly something I tried to pursue. So the very basic idea is you want to make a decision. And obviously that decision involves cost or requires some budget, but you want to make sure that the return is larger than the amount of money you invested. So what we need to have, we need to have a model that allows us to predict how much money we can make with a particular decision. So if you look at my my dissertation, it was about sales territory alignment and the vision that I pursued there was essentially I had a mapping program so that fitted quite nicely with my experience as a software engineer and what you could do on the map, you could realign the territories. And the idea was that we come up with a prediction about how much money we can make with a certain territory alignment and the economic intuition behind was that if you have one very large territory and one very small one then obviously in the one large territory you are not paying enough attention to rather attractive clients whereas in the small territory you visit clients where actually you feel they are not really attractive enough. And and so by realigning the territories, I try to solve the allocation problem in in terms of how much cost can I make to which kind of customers. And that uh, allocation problem combined with the assignment problem, that allowed me to predict how much money I can make with a certain territory alignment. And of course, once you know how much money you can make with one territory alignment, you can develop an algorithm that tries to look out for what is the most profitable combination of sales territories. And, and so you can see, I have a decision in that sense, it was the territory alignment and I could align it to a monetary outcome. And since then I, I, I usually pursued ideas. So for example, I like conjoined analysis a lot because you can simulate markets, you can make pricing or product decisions and you can see how much money is involved with such a decision. So that's certainly something that, that, that really keeps me ongoing. And this is the kind of vision. And of course, nowadays we have different data Sets, we have new algorithms. As you know, we have exciting developments in the area of machine learning. But still, I feel we, as researchers in business and also managers in business, we should try to make sure we also get the knowledge in terms of how to make sure that we can also measure the monetary impact of our decisions.
0: That is a very good description of uh, your uh, focus. But I, I presume that also led you to marketing finance interface, where you started still looking at the return on uh, marketing efforts. And now I understand you're working on MarTech or sales tech. These are marketing technology and sales technology solutions. And in particular, I understand that you're working at a uh, concept called ipas uh, which stands for integration platform as a service. Tell us a little bit about
1: that. Yeah, I mean the core idea behind IPaaS and it's a broad concept and uh, I've been quite fortunate that I can uh, cooperate with a a company I founded a couple of years ago. And essentially if you look at marketing systems you usually have lots of different systems. So there are some research, uh, some reports going on. They showed we might have had uh, about 150 marketing systems, let's say seven, eight years ago. Nowadays we are up to 7,000. And of course, there are large players out there like SAP, Salesforce, Adobe, and others. They try to come up with integrated solutions. But of course, I mean, the development is so fast. So if both of us look at our kids, they're constantly using new systems, a new software, which don't know. And for example, if you look at something simple, like you want to promote a webinar, actually, this process is very likely going to touch multiple systems. So first of all, you have a webinar system, for example, GoToMeeting, but there are lots of alternatives out there. And what you wanna do is, of course, you plan the webinar itself. So you need to have someone from the organization who is an expert in the field saying, okay, I'm going to run a webinar on topic X. But of course, I mean, that's not enough. What you need to make sure is you need to promote the webinar because otherwise you have no attendees. So you already have the combination between, let's say an email marketing system or some kind of marketing automation system. And you have to combine it with the, with the, the webinar system. And once the webinar is done, you also want to follow up. You might want to tell your Salesforce, oh, those customers were interested in our system. And and by the way, this customer watched the entire webinar to the end. So it looks like he or she's really interested. And this other customer, he or she briefly joined, but then left. Or maybe just watch the half of the webinar. So you feel maybe this customer is not ready for a sales call, but maybe we should shoot him an email, sending him the slides or p- providing him with additional information. So if you look at it, you have at least an email marketing system, you have the webinar system, you have let's say a CRM system and maybe other systems and and, and you build up a process across all those different systems. Now the question is, how does the data move from the email marketing to the webinar system? That might be done via registration of the customers, but how does it move from the webinar system to the CRM system? And if you do an action in the CRM system, how does that go back to the email marketing system? Because you might want to start something like a lead nurturing process where you say, okay, maybe that customer is not ready for, for a sales call, but I wanna provide him or her over the next 10 weeks with additional information. So you constantly have to exchange information data between those systems and actually it's a huge problem. And so what the iPaaS does, the core idea is that you can link cloud-based systems, but also systems on premises and you can synchronize data between those systems. So the idea is not to build up a very large database where you put in all the data and you have all the effort in terms of administering the data. the idea is you have all the systems you keep every system with its data a- a- and doing so it 's obviously redundant, so you have the same information in multiple systems, but the redundancy requires that you have to synchronize all the updates the so lose this thing yeah no, sorry go yeah, ahead.
0: so I-, I was just going to summarize your system as kind of a end-to-end lead generation, lead qualification, and a CRM overall system, but that consists of multiple systems talking to each other and performing uh, flawlessly and very smoothly. Is that a- That's right, that's right. So what what are some of the research issues or challenging issues in here um, for a marketing standpoint?
1: Well, I I, I think very importantly is, from my point of view, we have to look in marketing much more at the duration that certain processes take. So that usually requires event data. And event data, I mean, essentially contains three information. The one is an ID about, let's say, for example, a customer. The second one is a timestamp. And the third one is a particular action let's say you come to my website on a particular day at a particular hour you do something and now the next event might be me as a salesperson i call you so for example if you would like to figure out does it make sense that i call you quickly then of course i need to measure when did you get in contact with me and how long did it take me to respond and my experience is that that quite often we, we essentially lack the information about how much time something takes because we don't have the timestamp in our data. So personally, I feel the big future will be that we that we are getting much better at analyzing those type of event data.
0: That's a very nice way of saying uh, we should completely leverage the granular data we get. And some of the examples, burned you talked about are mostly B2B, so is it, uh, only for B2B or do you think iPass could also be used for B2C also?
1: I, I think it's relevant for both areas. Okay. the difference between b2b and b2c is essentially the following usually in a b2b setting you still have salesperson involved whereas in right. the b2b b2c setting let's say if you look at amazon or other online retailers essentially everything is done on the retailer system on the retailers platform so you don't have you don't have the integration problem with the Salesforce. but in a b2b setting i think the fundamental change is that Previously, you could go to an exhibition and essentially the customer would show up because they are not well informed. Let's say 10 years ago. In today's world, you have all the information available on the internet. So the customer is much better informed. So instead of contacting five potential suppliers, they just contact two. And the trick is you have to make sure you are one of the two. Too, right. And
0: uh, that brings us to the idea that in a post-COVID world, more and more customers are increasingly going to rely on this rather than trade shows, which are now becoming uh, not feasible. So I think i do you think uh, it's going to get fast acceptance and it's going to become the norm, at least in B2B situations?
1: I mean, essentially, you, you face the question, how can you operate with different systems? One solution might be you try to avoid to having multiple systems, but that requires that first of all you rely on one large supplier. Probably it's very costly, and you have to make sure this large supplier is following up with all the new trends coming up. That might be feasible, but probably it's a challenge. The other philosophy is that you simply use something like a best of breed. You combine them and you have a flexible system where you could also drop one system, replace it by another system, but still the process you have is still working out fine. So that's, I, I mean, there are two fundamental ideas. Obviously we are very much in favor of the best of breed approach.
0: That's good to know. Um, but that brings us to the uh, issue of privacy, right? Because now you're going to capture so much data. You talked about timestamp data, knowing when a prospect looked at a webinar or did a query or search. And um, But how does uh, the privacy aspect play in here, especially in, in a place like Germany where it's very sensitive to privacy elements, the whole of Europe for that matter. Uh, tell us something about uh, these issues. and speak to your research, I believe you're doing some work on this. So uh, uh, give me a summary of what your uh, thoughts are on this and what your research is.
1: Yeah, I mean, two answers. The first one is a technology provider. Of course, I mean, privacy is, is very important. If you allow for synchronizing data, one way to approach it that you essentially never touch the data yourself. So that means essentially it remains still within the firm, but but you are not touching it. So you don't have the privacy problem as a technology provider, but but that's of course something very important. The current problem that I don't wanna say problem, but but I mean, essentially what happened, and I think Europe is in the forefront of reacting is that the regulator feels something has gone wrong with in terms of how companies use the data. And I would say to some extent, that's probably right. I mean, if you look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal, it it kind of made clear that it was probably too easy for companies to to get access to consumer data. So what we do right now in in Europe with the GDPR and I think California and many other countries are are following, but probably in Europe, we have the strictest law. Essentially, the law says, if you don't have consent from the consumer, you're not allowed to collect the data, Uh, uh, sorry personal data. And personal data, we, we could look at a precise de- de- definition, but it's rather broadly defined. So for example, even collecting cookies, digital cookies about you, which wouldn't include your name, address or something, that would be considered personal data. And of course I need those cookies in an online advertising system, for example, for retargeting or for affiliate marketing to work. So the challenge is now that, You as an affiliate marketing provider or you as an ad exchange, you need to make sure you get the consent from the consumer. But unfortunately, you as the ad exchange, you don't have contact to the end consumer. The one who has contact might be the publisher. For example, the New York Times or a German newspaper or someone else. So that puts the publisher into the responsibility of not only getting consent for him or herself, but also for all the other actors with whom they collaborate. If you look at how many actors they collaborate with, you easily end up in the area of several hundred uh, actors. And you have the obligation as a publisher to make sure Be responsible. Yeah. that you're responsible. So okay. that's let's say the downside, but at the same time, it also increases your power because you are essentially the bottleneck who can get the consent for all the other actors behind. And I mean, that's a fascinating area. To give you an example, I mean, probably you know that the, the, the cookie consent banners, at least if you get to a European website, they have to ask you whether they have the consent from you to store the cookies. The concentrates can vary anywhere between 10% and 90%. So that's a huge range. And of course it depends upon the design. It depends upon the text that you use. But let's say if you end up with 10% and you have a technology provider, such as Google, who might say, if you don't have the consent, we don't deliver you with the opportunities to to serve ads, that essentially means you are no longer able to make business with Google and to refinance the uh, the, the content that you probably provide currently at a a price that doesn't justify the cost. And that, of course, is, is, is a huge challenge. So I mean, in, in, in Europe, the publishers currently have to deal with, with, with this problem about how to get the content. And it's a fascinating area because it moves from consumer behavior, how to get content to a back-end system where you also have to manage all the content. So for example, if you come to me as a publisher and you tell me, oh, I provided you with consent, but now I would like to withdraw it, it means, I have to essentially delete your data, but also the hundred other actors with whom I provided the data, I have to tell them, please, you have to delete all the data for the cookie that belongs to, for example, Venkyshenko. Yeah, but
0: uh, tell me a little bit about, I think GDPR came about a couple of years ago. So what has been the effect so far? You know, you pose this uh, big challenge for especially um, uh, all the players involved. But uh, what has been the effect? Has it been a mixed bag or has it been, uh, in general, heading in the right direction? What are you finding based on your research?
1: That's very difficult to say. I I think originally Europe had the idea of, in particular, publishing the the super large uh, online ad companies such as uh, Google and and, and Facebook and and others. I I mean, those players essentially were able to really prepare extremely well for this event and they also have the resources, the financial resources to deal with the problem. What is a little bit less clear whether all the other players that are not as rich, whether they really have the funding to Mm -hmm. uh, make sure they prepare accordingly. And I think the crucial moment is also out there, whether, I mean, we will end up with a world I would describe as a paid content world. I think right now we can roughly describe the internet as a a medium where we get a lot of content free of charge. Free of charge meaning we don't have to pay for it by money, but we have to pay for it by um providing attention to ads and of course also dividing information uh, about ourselves and i mean it's it's a very fair question whether this is a better world and a paid content world where we might essentially have the opportunity for example not seeing ads and not providing information for example for paying five dollars a month for a particular newspaper Uh, That might be a better world for the two of us because we could easily afford to pay the $5 uh, fee for a newspaper, but for many others it might be actually a worse world because they will not be able to, to, they won't have the funding to pay the $5. So I think we are currently on the edge where the publisher are going to recognize it's getting more and more difficult to keep up the advertising revenue, for example, because content rate dropped. Um, <clears throat> and where they have to think about, okay, how can we still continue to finance the content?
0: That, that is a good way of uh, describing what the issues are currently. You primarily talking from publisher standpoint, but uh, you know, the. The world that you describe is, uh, you know, many marketers face this uh, freemium problem. They always divide the uh, audience into two types. One who wants to get free benefits. So they are willing to tolerate ads. The other ones are, you know, paid subscribers. So they, for them, they will will at least if not completely remove the ads, make it very, very less ad dependent. But where do you see this uh, play out in terms of uh, in the long run? Because is this sustainable for a lot of marketers to keep doing this? Are we going into, because we are going more and more into subscription models. For example, retailers are more and more digitally native retailers are going on subscription models, right? So we got Stitch Fix, um, all these kind of companies are consistently using that model to business model to survive. So do you think... Uh, The business model evolves in such a way that it gets around these kind of privacy issues in a way that it makes a long term uh, viability of the business uh, feasible.
1: Well, I think there's clearly a way to, uh, currently a movement towards a subscription based business model and, and probably most news publisher would like to achieve it. The, the, the question is how to get there and, for example, we currently have a project going on on ad blogging and, and what we find that actually if you install an ad blogger you're going to see you are going to read more news. And it looks like it's a causal effect. So we controlled for all kinds of endogeneity issues. Now, the question is, what does it mean for the publisher? So on the one hand side, the publisher has advertising as as the revenue model. On the other side, what, what we can clearly show by showing up ads, they are actually kind of forcing the consumer to use the product less intensively. So the question is what to do, given that as a news publisher, you would actually like the users to read a lot of views. I mean, that, that, that that's good news. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I mean, one clear recommendation that we have, if you enter a subscription model, as many news publishers try, you should very, very carefully trade off whether those subscription models, whether they still involve seeing ads or not. So our clear recommendation is that you should very, very carefully evaluate whether the additional reven- uh, revenue you get via advertising, whether that is justified by a lower usage, by a higher risk of churning, and maybe also by a higher likelihood of getting um, additional readers. Yeah. thank you. Uh, now let's shift the gears a little
0: bit and talk a little bit about the German environment with regard to retailing. I know Germany is a, a uh, big player for retailing and you have some of the best discounting chains like Aldi, Little and Metro being uh, s- some famous retail chains. How is the retailing situation in Germany? Is omnichannel going to be the future or still brick and mortar is considered uh, more valuable by the shoppers? Uh, speak, can you speak a little bit to the situation out there?
1: Well, I think for a stationary retailer, a situation right now is extremely bad in Germany as probably many other countries of the world. I, I mean, encountering a lockdown, if you don't have an online channel, it virtually means zero business. Yeah. So of course, I mean, the government, what they try to do, they try to kind of help you through that. I, I mean, obviously very, very difficult financial times, but I think the crucial question is how will the world look like after the virus is, is gone? We all don't know when this will be, will be happen. but very likely everyone whom we forced to move online during the last couple of months, I don't think that all of them will simply move back to the old world. It will be a different world and they will have learned that, that actually the digital world provides a lot of advantages. So, I mean, apart from retailing, I don't believe that we will continue to move back to the office every single day a week. Probably we will have a hybrid model, at least where you have the flexibility, where we'll say, okay, why not sticking at home, doing some things done where you really need to concentrate and then, try to make sure you meet your team on one, two, maybe three days a week, and then you get all the teamwork done. And the other days you can work from home. And I'm also convinced with with the retailers, I mean, they will move into such a direction. You mentioned Lidl, I mean, which is obviously a large uh, discounter, but they are also fairly successful doing uh, electronic commerce. So they, they build up uh, uh, an additional, very successful uh, online channel. Alde is a bit slower, but also moving into that kind of uh, direction. So that resonates
0: well with the experience of U.S. retailers, particularly in the grocery environment. Uh, all the U.S. retailers have benefited tremendously, starting from you know Amazon to Walmart to Target To uh, Kroger's to HEB uh, and similar story you're telling. Now, look into the future. What do you think are the key research issues, uh, particularly with respect to uh, your areas uh, and also uh, in the German market or in the European market?
1: Personally, I'm I'm deeply convinced that in marketing, we have, let's say, I I would say most of the research we do is that looks at at an individual decision, let's say, uh, figure out what the optimal price is, figure out what's the optimal promotion message, something like that. I, I think where the industry is currently moving to is towards whole processes, and that also requires to look at decisions more in a process. I give you an example. If you fill up your shopping basket online and you don't order, probably it's a good idea if I get your consent and if I have a con- if I have an opportunity to contact you, I send you later on an email saying, "Oh thank you, I'm, I'm so sorry that you didn't purchase product X. Here's a coupon, whatever, ten percent, and why don't you move forward? I would really love to have you have a customer." And if you purchase. It might also be a good idea to do it a second time, but probably not three times in a row, because then you learned, obviously, that you simply have to wait to get a 10% coupon. So that means, obviously, I, 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 I need to have a process where I also have to consider, okay, what happened in the past and how can I consider that? Or another example, take the same process, but when to contact you, Should it be 24 hours later? Should it be at 8 a.m. in the morning? Should it be at the same point in time you did the purchase? Because obviously you had time doing the purchase there. And that also requires to track what is going on across time. And to some extent, I think exploring event data will turn out to be quite fruitful.
0: that's a very good uh, prediction, using better leveraging of event data for micro-marketing or micro-activities in the marketing process. Uh, so far, you've uh, spoken eloquently about uh, eloquently about um, a lot of uh, marketing issues. Uh, I'd like to understand uh, you better as a person. What do you do for fun, burn
1: Well, if I could do it, I would love to do skiing all winter long, so this winter probably will be a very bad winter for skiing, but I really love uh, doing skiing. I also like all kinds of uh, outdoor activities Uh, with my family. We spend a fair bit amount of time abroad. And When I was young, I used to play chess. That's obviously not the best sport to do with all the academic research, but sometimes I feel when I have to deal with the reviewers, I feel it's like a game of of chess. (laughs) And of course, I mean, I enjoyed watching the Netflix. You're pretty good at
0: that. You've been very (laughs) successful in doing that, so I have to give you a lot of credit. So that's an interesting issue about chess. Uh, I understand that Uh, Chess is now becoming more popular thanks to Netflix documentary Queen's Gambit. And I know that you probably a fan of that as well. So uh, do you get some time to watch that uh, series or, uh, or even keep in touch uh, with uh, some of your chess by online or playing with uh, somebody real
1: I mean, obviously I watch the series. What I really enjoy doing is there's a very nice commentator on, on really all the good games currently going on. His name is Daniel King. He yes, has a I'm YouTube uh, a channel, uh, powerplaychess.com. I really love watching his movies. They are 20 minutes long on average and he's really brilliant in explaining what's going on. And that allows me also to keep up a little bit with what's currently going on.
0: Well, I appreciate that because I myself used to be a chess player in my school and college days, having played for uh, uh, a number of levels. Uh, Unfortunately, like you, I don't have the time. The chess is very time-consuming. But what do you? Where do you think since AI has now um, come up with better, better algorithms? You know, you've got uh, AI can beat the grand chess grandmaster, the best grandmaster, very quickly now. Where do you? is the future of this for humans because um, the Go uh, and uh, chess games and all the games being mastered by AI, do you think there'll there'll ever be a situation which humans may be interested in pursuing this because they might say, oh no matter how hard we play, the machine will outwit us. So do you think this will lead to some kind of um, uh, some kind of a resignation on the part of humans that a lot of these tasks, I'm not going to apply my brains.
1: I actually don't think so. I mean, you, you talked about the alpha zero and the alpha yeah. zero even put the, 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 the level how good a machine can play chess and also go to a new level. But, but even way before alpha zero, uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, it was clear that a human cannot beat a machine. So I mean obviously the difference now became maybe a, a bit larger with the, with the Alpha Zero, but, but they didn't hurt the game. And what is quite interesting to see that actually the top players, they, they pick up the ideas from the machine. So it's not only the machines getting better, okay. also the pl- the top players are picking up that new did. ideas. Probably, okay. I mean, the, the, the gap won't diminish too strongly, but, but I mean, every development has, has two coins. So in that sense, um, it, it's also good news for, for the top players. And, and so in that sense, um, as long as you can take care of, of, of cheating that might go on because the machines play so much better, I didn't, I didn't think it hurt uh, the, the game. Uh, that's
0: a positive response that humans can learn from machines. Uh, but on that note, we are coming to the last segment, and I would like your um, views, our uh, calls, uh, our advice to the viewers and listeners of this podcast. Um, what would be, we have different audience. We have current students, former students, executives, uh, policy officials, um, and uh, other stakeholders. Uh, what would be your advice for uh, you know, what what is in store for future business and retailing, and what could uh, these stakeholders do to prepare themselves better for the future?
1: Well, let me start with with the undergraduate teaching. Uh, personally i'm the, I'm deeply convinced that as a good marketeer, you have to you need to have a good understanding about the data. And sometimes I'm joking with my uh, econ colleagues. Uh, They they usually think they are better researchers because they have so much data, and then I asked them, okay, you go to the Federal Bureau of Statistics, you get the 20 years of data, and then... It might turn out you have monthly data. So that means 20 times 12. So that means 240 observations. And then I tell them about the situations we encounter with millions of consumers making decisions. So I'm deeply convinced that in marketing, we have so much more data than in most other disciplines in in business and in particular in economics. So the ones who would like to work with data, I, I think they should actually come to our field. At the same time, I also feel the marketeer of the future needs to have a decent knowledge how to work with data. Because even if if you're a very creative person and you might have outstanding creative ideas in terms of how to set up an ad spot or something like that, one day someone will come and, and show me, okay, you have a number of convincing arguments why this very innovative, creative spot might be better, but, but can you also show me with the data? And if you can't do that, probably you won't get the money to run the advertising spots. On the other side, if, if you manage to do so, if, if you tell the CFO, you give me 10 euros and I give you 25 euros back, I, I mean, that's a very strong argument to get much more money from, Uh, for for running the marketing campaigns. So that's what I do with the undergraduates. I think for for the business, the most important part will be from my point of view, we will see much more automation going on. We talked about the processes. I think some of the parts of the processes will be optimized from my point of view, we will see a lot of information technology going on there. But if you think about digitization, we essentially think about seamless processes that that simply execute uh, fastly. And what we would like to have is if you have a customer on your website thinking about something, essentially you wanna be like Amazon instantly sending a recommendation about what to do. And obviously you can't get humans involved to make such a quick decision. So we need to make sure that that uh, software helps us to accomplish this vision
0: so I think your message is very clear uh, be more geared towards data analysis be more geared towards uh, processing we more geared to real-time decision optimization automation um, and I think on that note I wanted to express my sincere thanks for coming on uh, this show and uh, lighting it up with uh, fabulous insights uh, from you and your research. So vielen Dank and uh, best wishes for continued success in your current and new future research and I'm really looking forward to newer insights from your research. Uh, Auf Wiedersehen.
1: Vielen Dank, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.